Welcome to the Morning Huddle, where business, healthcare, and lifestyle meet. This platform is designed to educate and equip business-minded training healthcare professionals to become the leaders in an evolving healthcare landscape. We are your hosts, Dr. Jermaine Fetty and student Dr. Kamal Smith. Today's episode will feature practice owner and dentist, Dr. Shana Holman. We'll discuss her unique path to practice ownership, pros and cons of doing a residency versus going straight into practice, and strategies to maintain a healthy work-life balance. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Morning Huddle podcast. We have a very special episode today with a very special guest. Um, Our guest today is Dr. Shana Holman, a graduate of Duke University, my alma mater. Um, She has degrees in biological anthropology and anatomy. Um, She went on to earn her DDS and PhD in biomedical sciences from the University of Maryland School of Dentistry. She currently serves as a dentist and the owner of Holman Family Dental Care. In addition to her clinical work, um, she has published over a dozen peer-reviewed research articles. She is also a wife and a mother. Um, Dr. Holman is dynamic, personable, and a great leader within her dental practice and community. Her guidance has been pivotal in my life, and it is an honor to introduce today's guest of the morning huddle, Dr. Holman. Well, thanks for having me, guys. Thank you for being here. Um, so our first question is just to tell the, our listeners a little bit about yourself and your background. Yeah, so I, you kind of gave a little bit of an overview, but I went straight through from my undergrad to dental school. And then once I got to dental school, I applied for a DDS PhD program. My school had a training grant from NIH. So that program paid for all of my school, which was amazing. Um, and I did, so I did two years of dental school, worked on my PhD for three years until I defended my dissertation and then came back to dental school and finished my last two years. Um, after that, I went to do a year at the VA in Perry Point, Maryland, where I got a fellowship in oral medicine and got some more advanced experience with surgery, especially and placed implants and just did things I didn't have the chance to do in dental school. And then I decided to move back to Chapel Hill, North Carolina, and that's my hometown. It's where my husband was born and raised. It's where all of our family pretty much is. And at that point, I had two children. I had one as in year six of seven at dental school, and I had one during residency. And so we decided to move back here, raise our kids near their family. Um, I went to work for a practice in Raleigh uh, that was mostly special needs uh, patients, mostly Medicaid. It was a almost like a second residency. The patients were so medically complex. It really made me use my training and it was really challenging work. I learned a lot and loved it, but I realized on day one of working in another office that that probably was not going to be for me. So I talked to the bank about what I was going to need to do to either buy or start a practice. They told me I basically needed a year of experience under my belt uh, before they'd loan me money. So I did that and pretty much at the year mark, I was signing a lease and did a startup from scratch. So um, yeah, in that year, I just tried to gain as much experience as possible. Uh, I did a lot of temping, met other dental professionals, dental staff, really tried to learn from all of them so I could shape the vision for what I wanted my practice to be like. And I opened in late uh, December of 2000, uh, gosh, was that 15? or no, sorry, late December 17. 
And so that was about four and a half years ago now. Um, and the practice has just been growing really quickly, which has had its own challenges, but it's been mostly exciting and good. I did have another child about a year and a half ago, number three came. So that's been exciting. Had to ride out a pandemic, also very exciting as a new business owner, but I've made it through and learned a lot along the way. And uh, it's, it's been a good journey, you know? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. So when was this spark that you wanted to become a dentist and then the spark for, I, I want to become a practice owner? When did you make those decisions? You know, I think I've always found myself in positions of leadership through my undergrad and through dental school, you know, in, in undergrad as a member of Zeta Phi Beta and learned a lot about leadership through that organization and found myself in a lot of leadership roles um, within the Greek community. I was a leader in the student research group in dental school um, as my class president. I always have been in roles of leadership. I really like to foster a team. I like to have a vision and carry out a goal and find how, you know, how when you work as a team, you just do things so much bigger and greater than anything else. So I've always just loved doing that. And so I always figured I'd want to be an owner, but I figured because I had children and because I didn't know what I was doing as a dental practice owner that I'd have to hold off on that goal a little bit. I figured, you know, let me wait, work a couple of years, figure out what the heck, you know, how a dental office works, what I'm doing, figure out how to be a dentist in real life. And then maybe I'll buy someone's practice. Um, I really thought I couldn't do a startup because again, I had too much responsibility to not have an income. So I didn't even think that was on the table. But once I, um, once I went to residency, we had a CPA visit who said, you really want to be owning a practice within two years of graduating, even if you do a one-year residency. And I didn't even really think that, again, was feasible. But, you know, he had said it was. And I was like, okay, well, maybe I could do it that quickly. But I still was a bit hesitant. But when I went to work for my first practice and I saw kind of the general disregard for the team and the experience and the equipment, you know, I knew that there's equipment and supplies and tools that would allow me to do a better job, but we couldn't have them. I knew how I wanted people to be talked to, and that wasn't what was happening at the front desk. You know, I had an assistant that had some mental health issues that were being disregarded. Like, I just, all that stuff, you know, really bothered me. Like, I could be in my little bubble and do fillings and just leave it then today, I suppose, but that's just not who I'm cut out to be. Like, I care about the whole thing. Mm -hmm. The, all the ins and outs of the practice and how people are treated, especially whether it's patients or the team. And so I just realized that I was going to need to more shift my focus to making sure I could become an owner as soon as possible versus necessarily when I was completely ready. Yeah. And so I shifted my focus that way. And like I said, I kind of met with the bank and figured out how that would look, but I still thought I'd have to buy a practice. I still didn't think I could start one. But once I realized, like, once I started really talking to some people that were about to retire and seeing their offices and seeing the way these teams are built and structured, I started to realize more that I'd be going into this practice. I'd I couldn't change a lot right away because, again, you don't want to create a shock to everybody. And then you kind of have to win over all the team members and have to win over all the patients. It just seemed like guys put it, you're, you're putting yourself in a very difficult position to, to do all of that. And to still create the vision that you want to create, like then really trying to mold this into your own thing, which is ultimately why I was becoming an owner. It wasn't just to make more money. It was like, I really wanted to have this practice that I wanted to have. 
So I started trying to really picture that. And I talked to some of my friends who had done this and they would tell me other horror stories about how they bought the practice and then the HVAC went out. Then they had to replace all this equipment that they didn't know was broken. And so I was like, God, goodness, there's also just like unforeseen expenses. Mm-hmm. And I started just feeling like, so what would be the advantages of buying someone else's office, right? The big advantage is having income on day one, having people. But when I really thought about my personal strengths and weaknesses, people is not my weakness. I connect well with people. I like people. I know how to manage people. I know how to market myself. I know how to put myself out there to attract people. And I just thought, you know, I don't think I'm willing to make all that sacrifice of my own vision and goal with how this would look for the benefit of having people on day one. I really think that I could bring people in and it might not be a lot, but it would be mine. And, you know, it doesn't take a lot to at least just cut, you know, break even. Like, could I at least break even? I was like, you know, I think I could at least do that. And I really looked at my personal budget and my expenses. You know, my husband's a stay-at-home dad. He does photography as well, but his primary role is stay-at-home dad. And I looked at all of that and I figured that if I kept two jobs that both wanted me one day a week, I could probably pay my bills off of those two one-day-a-week jobs, Mm -hmm. open my practice three days a week. And again, even if I made no money, at least... I'd have that. At least I could grow it at the pace I wanted to. I could at least pay my bills and meet my bare minimum goals. And I talked that through with my husband and what that meant for him and what that would look like for our family, because that takes some sacrifice, of course, too. And I said, you know, I'm just going to work six days a week leading up to this. I'm going to save as much as much money as I can. I'll take any tip job anywhere. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. work me to death. Let's just save up this money. And then I'm going to make it happen. And um, yeah, and I, you know, document everything on social media. I put myself out there. I didn't know if my area was ready for me. Again, being a, one of the only female, I mean, there's not many female dentists in Chapel Hill, to be honest. There's definitely like, I mean, I don't think there's any brown dentists. I mean, very few brown dentists, <laughs> like yeah. anyone that's non-white. There's a few, but not many. So I just, and, and I'm much younger than a lot of the dentists here. So I just wasn't really even sure if my area was ready for me exactly, but I think they were. And I put myself out there. I just showed who I was, who my authentic self was. And what was cool is just to see how people did gravitate to that. So on day one, we had 53 pre-booked appointments and it hasn't slowed down. You know, I was able to fill my schedule, I was able to get, make that happen. In the first year of practice, we produced more than any of the practices I was looking at to buy as people were walking out the door. And it just was like a moment of relief of like, you know, did it. But, uh, it was hard. I mean, it is, it's hard to make that decision and have the confidence. And, you know, there's sometimes those moments where you look back and I'm like, where did that confidence even come from? But I think it was from the desire to be an entrepreneur and have my own thing. And I knew what that was going to take, but I thought it'd be easier to start with a couple employees that were drawn to my vision, my vision for my practice, what I wanted to create, draw in people that I could show who I was authentically through social media, my website, bring those people to my practice. Mm-hmm. And that way I actually have the practice that I want to have. And I can set up the system so I could scale it at whatever pace it needed to be scaled, but that wasn't really the goal. Um, but I just felt a lot better about that. I had a lot more control over it and I was bringing in people that wanted to be there. I wouldn't have to win over people that, yeah. you know, might have no interest in having me as their dentist. Mm-hmm. 
So there's a lot to unpack there. Oh, I yeah. Think yeah. <laughs> the main points I take I took from that was knowing yourself and being able to leverage your own strengths and weaknesses to create your journey. And I think that's to, huge. Yeah. Because so, yeah. I really didn't know much about running an office at this point. I mean, I have to think, I was like a year out of residency. Mm-hmm. I still don't know a lot about all the ins and outs of running my practice, to be honest. But that's why one of my first hires was an office manager who had about five years of experience. Mm-hmm. She knew all that stuff. She had been managing an office before. And a lot of people thought that was crazy because she cost more money. But that what, 10 more dollars an hour for someone experienced versus not has paid hugely because she actually knows what the heck she's doing and could fill my schedule and present treatment and financing options. And she knew how to set up all the front desk systems. And, you know, she was able to help me create the manuals to run the front desk. And, you know, she is a big part of why this took off the way it did. Yeah. And surrounding yourself with a great team and people that, that can pick up in, in the areas that you're not an expert in, having experts yep. in those areas and being able to delegate is really important in, in building we, a culture and, and building a su- successful practice. Absolutely. We joke that we have like a yin-yang effect, you know, again, yeah. like we have very opposite strengths and weaknesses mm-hmm. and it works perfectly together. And then there's certain things we overlap on, which, yeah. you know, are really important things to overlap on with your office manager, exactly. like your ethics and values and mm-hmm your passion, you know, but yeah, I'm a lot more organized. She's real. She's much more tough than I am. I'm totally soft and wimp about things that she's really tough and can give that kind of tough love to people. And it's just, it works really well. But again, it was my self-awareness of my strengths and weaknesses. So I could find the person mm-hmm. to balance that, to, to make this work. That's a great point. I actually heard in a talk, I was and at the SNDA conference, having a contrarian in your personal circle or your business, somebody who thinks on the complete opposite spectrum of you who can challenge your ideas and, and just identify the blind spot so you can be able to just see the entire picture. You can see the entire field when making decisions and, um, and, and pick up those areas, having the yin-yang effect. Like, yes, exactly. But it's hard because a lot of people aren't really ready for that. Like, mm. A lot of people would much rather have someone just say they're awesome. Yeah, disagree with and, them. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's part of my PhD training where you start to crave being around people that don't do that. Like when I would give my paper to someone to read and they just said, oh, this sounds great. I was like, great. They didn't even care enough to read it and really give me their feedback. Like there's no way I could write something and it's just yeah. perfect. I mean, you know, like I started that felt more irritating than anything that's not helpful like I want someone to rip apart what I'm doing Mm -hmm. and make it better you know I'm not trying to do just what I'm trying to do Mm -hmm. but a lot of people don't are are not really able to take that you know Mm -hmm. and what that really means and they're not willing to listen to it and really you know process that level of feedback but we both are pretty good at doing that with each other Mm-hmm. you know and talking frankly and not having our feelings hurt but really understanding that we're trying to push each other to be better definitely, definitely. i love that i, love I definitely that. want to hear more about this seven-year program i know people have been asking about it and i, I don't have any answers for them can you please for the DS phd yeah how'd you choose the dental school how'd you choose yeah. your dental school are there other dental schools out here who do have that program how did you choose maryland yeah. 
Yeah. So, you know, I don't know for sure the status of these programs now because it's a little different, but it's a T32 grant from NIDCR, which is, you know, Dental Craniofacial Research Branch of NIH. Um, they had a training grant that certain schools were awarded to train people that wanted a DDS and PhD. I mean, Ohio State had a program, UCSF had a program, I think UNC still has a program, but not all of them are funded anymore. So I just don't know, you know, again, the current status of these training grants. But after a couple, after I was in the program four years, I applied for my own fellowship, which is an F30 through NIDCR. I had to write a grant and I got it rejected the first time. I reapplied, I got it accepted, but that grant paid for the rest of my school just through that grant. Mm -hmm. So there are mechanisms out there, but it's, again, it's a little complicated. You have to talk to the school. Do they have it and a DDS PhD and is it funded by a training grant? And if it is, at least that will pay for everything for you until you hopefully would get an F30 yourself. But even if you don't, it's kind of nice to know if it's funded or not. Um, they used to have a program that was similar that was a PhD and specialty combo. Um, that was also like six, you know, six years or some extended amount of time that you get a PhD and your specialty and it's all paid for. But then that, you know, changed to this DBS PhDC. I just don't know the exact status, but it was really, yeah, an amazing opportunity to be able to do that and just take a break from dental school. I mean, I love love dental school and everything, but I'm just, I don't learn like that. Like just having to memorize huge amounts of information. Um, and the idea of just taking a few years off and just taking a deeper dive into one area I was really interested in sounded like a really nice kind of break from that kind of pace of things, especially because I'd gone straight through. Yeah. So since your program was seven years, it, it's a, it was definitely unorthodox in that manner. How were you able to like feel like leadership roles while you were in school since you technically that was that was tricky yeah. yeah that was tricky so I was elected my class president first year and then once I decided to do this program I was like well there's not really a point in me continuing that and one of my best friends was said that she would be interested so I said awesome like if no one else was interested I'd do it two years and then have to leave but since she was interested I said that works perfectly she's amazing so she stepped into that and then I left dental school for three years. So I was still really active with student research group. Um, but, you know, and I was president of that. I was president of that on the national level, not president, but an officer of that on the national level too, which was fun. But what was kind of funny for me is when I came back to dental school, I was like newly pregnant, older than my classmates. All the people I knew in dental school had already graduated. So like I was coming into brand new people and they, I think they just kind of looked at me as like, you know, a pregnant older student that was like not very involved. Like they didn't really understand me as a leader, yeah. you know, and it did, it did kind of hurt at times too, though, because I felt like I've been here now five years, I've done all this stuff. And then this class I'm joining just is like, has no idea of my leadership potential. But I think I also had a little less interest in in doing a lot just because I had a baby on the way. And I was, you know, again, I had only two years left. And so I still remained a real leader within the student research group and that community knew me well. And I didn't really get involved in the class representatives anymore and things like that. I didn't have a lot of extra time to be volunteering and doing a lot of other types of work. So I just put my focus more on to student research group and, and finishing up school and whatnot. I hear it. Respect that. Respect. And a lot of stuff in my community. I did a lot of 
just volunteer work within my local community in Baltimore, which was also pretty awesome because by the time I came back to dental school, I already had all my patients because everyone was just waiting for me to get back to the clinical yeah. part. And so all of my neighbors from like a very rough area in Baltimore and people from our neighborhood bar, everybody came out because they'd been friends with me now for five years, just waiting for me to <laughs> fix their teeth. So I had no problem. My graduation requirements or finding patients. I hardly needed anyone from the actual school. Um, so there's some advantages, but it's weird. It was weird at graduation too, because I really, you know, I didn't really get any acknowledgement about all the things I'd done. Cause again, no one really knew any of the things I'd really done over those seven years, but it is what it is. And it's, you know, when I say seven years, it really is until you defend your dissertation, it can easily be eight. Um, I'd say that's probably the default. My, my mentor was amazing. She kind of sat me down and said, look, you're not getting a fake PhD. I want three first authored papers, another two or three co-authored. That's going to be your dissertation. You'll get a couple of days to write your intro and conclusion. No one reads those anyway, but I want you to walk into your dissertation and your whole dissertation is papers already at least accepted for publication. Maybe they're not in press yet, but like no one's going to be able to tell you anything. Like there's not going to be any amount of feedback on your work that you haven't already heard and dealt with. And that's what you're walking into. So I didn't have kids yet, you know, so I would work all day in the lab. I come home, eat dinner, crunch numbers and work on my data in the evening. Like I worked really hard to be able to get that done that quickly and have it not be just like, again, MD, PhDs and DDS, PhDs. You have people that kind of have a little bit of a, you know, somewhat not real PhD because, you know, but I, I really worked hard to try to get that done quickly. So you said you did a residency. Let me ask you this. Would, yeah. You're saying it sounds like you really enjoyed your residency. What kind of advice would you yeah. give those who are thinking about doing a residency? Uh, so worth it. I mean, I can't express that enough. That like the reason I was able to start a practice and hit numbers I hit and do things as confidently as I was doing them from so early on was because of that residency. You know, when someone can walk in and there's a couple of premolars that need root canals and I can be like, oh, I can do those you know, and get them done. And so when it sells something as a full mouth extraction and dentures, confident in that, and not just pulling the teeth, but actually alveoloplasty and really preparing the ridge and getting good closure and like really doing a nice full mouth extraction. Like, you know, that kind of stuff is so priceless and uh, being able to do it efficiently, being able to also know that where your limits are like, oh, yep, not touching that. That's just going to sink my time and energy and not be worth it at all. Like knowing that stuff is so helpful. Um, but I was nowhere near at the level after finishing dental school that I was after finishing that one year of residency. I mean, I just, I wasn't, I, I definitely, if anything, it just confidence wise, but I mean, after residency, all the root canals I did, all the dentures, all the extractions, I placed about 15 implants or so. I mean, enough of everything where I was like, okay, if this walks in the door, I'm good. They would usually joke at the VA. I'm sure they still do that. Like that patient population is so complex, medically complex, complex teeth issues that once you've kind of worked in that environment, it's hard to see something that's all that surprising, mm. you know? And I even, I mean, I feel like I had really good background from that about medical issues, especially like there's some of the dentists, especially in this area that just don't have that comfort level, you know, and are referring patients like, oh, well, they're on oxygen or they're on a blood thinner. I can't touch that. And so just knowing how to manage it or 
um, again, different oral, because of that oral medicine fellowship, how to be like, okay, now let me just go ahead and get that biopsy for you right now. You know, no big deal. And being able to manage that well, instead of giving people magic mouthwash, which just says like everything in it, it doesn't actually, you know, that's yeah. not what you're doing. Like being able to be like, okay, I think this is what it is. Let's try this thing to target it. Let's buy it, see that and confirm that this would be the right thing. Like really be able to take your time with things thoroughly. I wasn't at that level when I finished dental school. So if you had to put your professor hat on, right? And you were yeah. head of our pathology oral medicine class, give us a lecture on some things that students should really pay attention to. So when they actually hear it in class, <laughs> you know, I'm probably going to see this out in the real world. Let me lock in. Yeah. Um, good question. I mean, even if you think about something like magic mouthwash, all the ingredients in it, like knowing when you would give any of those things, like what types of lesions need a steroid mouth rinse, which versus a steroid ointment versus uh, a antifungal, you know, there's a lot of the same diagnoses that it's all the same thing that fixes it. It's just steroid. <laughs> like a lot of things just need some steroids. So you don't need to throw everything under the kitchen sink at it. But knowing kind of what types of lesions probably need steroids, knowing which kind of lesions are precancerous and really need a biopsy and at what intervals do they need biopsies, but are probably, you know, like what do you really need to monitor versus what you don't, um, but just stuff like that, you know, you don't necessarily need to be able to look at a lesion and know exactly what it is, but you need to know when you need to biopsy it to figure out what it is and what potential things would help it. Um, that's a lot of. I feel like oral medicine. And if there's certain types of biopsies you can get comfortable with, that's really nice. It's a nice service to people to not have to refer everything, every biopsy out, but there's a lot I still refer out just because I know I'm not gonna do as good a job as a surgeon, especially anything you think would be cancerous, of course, but um, some things are pretty easy. Do you hold Yeah, punch? sometimes I just put laser. I sometimes laser, sometimes hole punch. Um, I had a guy that had like a pretty obvious looking wart on his lingual frenulum. So it's cool when you're just like, oh, let me just get that for you real quick mm -hmm. with the laser. Yeah. <laughs> I had someone else with like a little, uh, you know, one of those things, it's probably like a granuloma or something between a couple of teeth. Again, his whole appointment was with something funny, like 10 minutes because numb, cut off, sample, and, and it's done. You don't need to stitch anything up or anything. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, when you have the people that just bite on one little blob on their lower lip over and over and over and you can like let me just remove that for you and then you can you know they're like oh that was so amazing it's so quick it's easy it's nice you know but yeah I do a lot of laser things um sometimes just straight scissors and give it a stitch mm -hmm. so if you had to reflect on your dental school I couldn't even call it a journey your dental school lifetime <laughs> a lifetime my entire 20s <laughs> what you was the most impactful uh things that you learned while during your seven year dental school journey probably just how to talk to people. I mean, I think it's probably the biggest skill to like learn to how to explain dentistry, which is so foreign to people, like in a way that they can understand and really trying to hone that craft a little bit. So, cause when people can't understand what it is you're even talking about, it's really hard to fill your schedule with treatment. Um, but when people can really understand and picture and things that you're talking about, I think that's huge. So, I mean, I think just the practice of that in the last couple of years there when you're seeing patients and whether it's showing pictures or diagrams or pictures of their own teeth or explaining in layman's terms things like I just think that is a real skill and probably one thing that really translates a lot up 
also just being really confident in diagnosis. I mean, as basic as that sounds, when I got out in the real world and talked to dentists, I would come across, I'm surprised how many people did not feel confident diagnosing what I thought was fairly basic, like periodontal disease or a cracked tooth. Oh, does this tooth need a root canal or not? It has a PARL. And it's like, well, you have to test it. Like test, did you probe around it? Did you cold test it? What makes it feel better? Like look for all these clues and actually make a pulpal and a periapical diagnosis for the tooth. Like, I think that kind of stuff is easy as you start getting in your clinical years to kind of breeze through some of that stuff, but you really need a clear diagnosis. And that diagnosis needs to be very clear in your notes. Um, you can get in a lot of trouble if you're just, if your note says I did number seven, M-I-F-L, uh, why? What's the diagnosis? Mm. Was there a cavity? Was it a fracture? Was it cosmetic? Like everything needs a diagnosis to it. And it has to be clear. If the tooth is fractured, even a little chip, you should probe that tooth. Make sure it's nothing weird down the root, you know, like just being really thorough about going through and do every test, get a clear pulpal and periapical diagnosis for things. When your clinical notes, any procedure you do, if you're pulling out a bunch of root tips, you don't just say root tips extracted, elevated. What was the diagnosis for every tooth? Were they necrotic? Were there, was there an abscess? Any of them have pain? Like you have to go through and diagnose everything. I just think that again, sometimes when you get quick about things, you're trying to just keep up and navigate a new practice environment or just finish your fourth year. You can lose sight of that a little bit. You can get a lot of trouble if anything ever gets audited and you don't have a diagnosis for what you did and why. I think it's safe to say your assistants don't fill out your notes. <laughs> <laughs> well, they do. I should say they, they started. They, they don't finish. They have a crazy template. Oh, their template's nuts, you know, because it states oh. every test, every test, you know, it says patient came in for emergency and there are questions they have to ask that patient in the note about their pain. What makes it better? How did this happen? What all those types of questions you go through in dental school. And at the end, it says clinical exam, test done, percussion, palpation, probings, cold, tooth sleuth, list every test. I have to, they have to write in every Thing I got for my test and then it says diagnosis and it lists all options of pulpal diagnosis all options of periapical diagnosis they delete back everything else come up with both of those what is my treatment recommendation what are any alternatives you know I'm just being very thorough but it is a little bit of dental school style like you still have to do that kind of stuff you know um so yeah they don't know the diagnoses they wouldn't know how to diagnose a teeth but now that I have three associates that work for me too, I need to make sure they're doing just as thorough. So the note template really helps me make sure that everyone is slow down or just see a root tip and start pulling it out. Like that root tip needs a diagnosis. Yeah. <laughs> um, was it restored? You know, again, maybe the, the insurance comes back. Well, why didn't you just restore it? Well, you know, like you have to, you have to state it's non-restorable. Yeah. You know, you have to, you have to write all these things out. But yeah, I just think being very thorough about your diagnosis is huge and really paying attention at school. There's no reason you should be graduating and you don't know what periodontal disease is. That doesn't make any sense. Um, it it's, it's, can be confusing in the real world because you have the code for Profi, you have a code for FMD, you have a code for the gingivitis cleaning, like a 4346. 
you have localized SRP, you have the quad of SRP, you should be very confident about when you need each of those codes. What is the definition? How does insurance look at that? But also just how does the actual CDT code book, you know, define them? So that you know how to document that diagnosis properly and prescribe the right type of cleaning. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it sounds basic. I mean, but like, you'd be surprised how many people are graduating and they're like, wait, 4346, we didn't use that code in dental school. How do you, da- what, what, what is that? <laughs> you know, like, you need to know. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's in the details. Dentistry is in the details. That's yep. the advice I've always heard. And another piece of advice that one of our interviewees earlier, Dr. Chris Ammons said his biggest advice in dentistry was to slow down. And I feel like that you're, you're reiterating that point. Like there's no need to rush, focus on the care first and, and make sure you do it right before you do it fast. And again, those are tough lessons to learn as a new graduate. I mean, when you blow through something and then you're like, you know, you've sent this patient out an endodontist for their root canal and the endodontist comes back being like, uh, this tooth's cracked down the middle or like this tooth has such a big cavity in it. What are you going to restore after I finish cleaning out this cavity and doing the root canal? And all of a sudden you're like, oh God. And now you've wasted your patient's time, money. They're still in pain. They don't understand. Why did you not know that? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And gotta slow down. For sure. But to rewind a little bit, going back to your first year um, out of dental school, I know that there's multiple schools of thought, and I wanted to get your thoughts on, do you think that you could have learned what you learned in your AEGD in practice and CE? Um, Because there is a school of thought that says that the best way that you can kind of prepare yourself for being a practice is being in practice, just because you're in that that speed and you're you're having to swim. Um, would you agree with that or what what are your thoughts on that I think it's possible Mm -hmm. if you truly put the time and money towards all the CE Mm -hmm. but you are also going to have a lot more stress because you're going to have to make all those same mistakes on full pay cash paying patients with a boss and everything because you're going to make mistakes you're going to mess things up but again, it's what do you prefer? Like nobody over your shoulder and you make that mistake and you figure it out. Um, but it is nice when you have someone over your shoulder that catches that mistake before you even picked up a drill or, or did something stupid. Um, so I do think there's a lot more stress involved in not having that kind of mentorship, but I do think it's possible to do the classes. And like you're saying, mm-hmm. um, manage things. I and mean, when I was at a residency about six months, I temped with a guy that had graduated dental school like a year or two, I think, no, actually a year before. We were the same year, but he did no residency. Mm-hmm. And he had a patient having a complication from a, uh, an extraction. And he pulled me in and he, 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 he pulled me aside and said, I don't, I don't know what to do. This guy has this big blob of bloody tissue above the socket. And like, I, I don't know what this is or what to do. And I was able to explain to him that it sounded like a liver clot. He didn't know, he hadn't seen one before. Mm-hmm. And it just depends what you get out of dental school. You know, there's a lot of things you just haven't seen before. Mm-hmm. He hadn't seen it. And so he asked me what to, he asked me to come look at the patient in person and it was a liver clot. Mm-hmm. And I said, okay. And he said, but then what, what do I do about it? Mm-hmm. Well, you need it, probably need to numb it. You're going to need to suck that thing up and scrape it out and, he was like, okay, you know, I think I can, I think I can manage that. 
And he went back in, pulled me up aside again into a different room and said, I poked it and it bled everywhere. Like, what if it just keeps bleeding? What am I going to do? It's it's just, it bled, it's bleeding like crazy. And I was like, you just have to script, like suck it. It's the person's not on blood thinners, like just get it up. (laughs) Like, but he had never dealt with that before. You know, it was really scary. And and I said, you you know, do you want me to just jump in? And I wasn't really allowed to be doing that. This, I was temping. I was supposed to be just uh, triaging, not doing any treatment. But now, I mean, I was able to jump in, I numbed the tooth, I scraped all that out, I was able to get a clot, and, and it was fine. But like, you know, you're, you're gonna have situations like that where something happens, and you don't know what to do. And probably the best situation is at least have a senior dentist in the office at the same time you're working. I think the hardest situation to go into is one where you are the only dentist, and you just finished school, you're never gonna, like, you're not gonna know what you don't know, you're gonna make a lot of mistakes, probably. And just have to really learn the hard way through a lot of it. Um, if you even learn, because again, when no one's there to really even explain, sometimes you don't even really figure it out. So, I mean, I think that's part of the hard part there, but there's a lot of great CE about echo, a lot of great CE about implants and wisdom teeth, even pediatrics. Like there's a lot of great classes, but it's just situ- there's certain situations. Yep. You just haven't seen a lot yet. You haven't managing all those kind of complications out things are hard but if you're going to have to do it I'd say at least try to make sure there's another dentist in the office to even again I've even found my associates even when they're confident about their diagnosis and they're like oh yeah yeah that's you know again my younger associates not my you know more more senior ones but like you know they'll be very confident about diagnosis and then we discuss it and they're like oh I miss this and like but at least I'm in the office at least like but even when they aren't even asking me a question, I just kind of look behind a little bit. Mm-hmm. Things get caught. I mean, it's just the reality of being a new dentist. You're not, you know, you don't necessarily know all those things. Or or they're like about to pull out a tooth. And I'm like, okay, did you discuss all the ways to replace the missing tooth? And what's the game plan? Have you quoted them on that? And they're like, uh, well, we talked about it. But like, well, you know, I mean, yeah, solid game plan in place before you start pulling out someone's teeth. Like, this is not a, you know, a mom clinic. Like, yeah. this is different. Like, you need to have a plan. Yeah. Um, yeah, so little things like that. It's just kind of hard to learn the hard way mm-hmm. sometimes, you know? Um, or how have you yes. continued to hone your skills and learn new procedures after being in, in practice? How have you continued yeah, to learn I mean, Still taking a lot of classes and I mean I take a lot of classes that are business oriented and management oriented as well as skill related I'm taking a, I mean as a practice owner I have such a bigger budget of what I can spend on CE I mean it's crazy it's just not comparable what to what someone can do as an associate it, it's just not I mean I've done a ton of sleep medicine courses and laser courses and um especially sleep medicine in the last three years has been like a lot of the classes I've taken, but it does give me the luxury of being able to spend a lot more on some bigger classes to get the training I have. I took a a myofunctional therapy course. It's like, you know, several days, myobrace, just several days and travel and stuff. So being an owner gives you a lot more ability to do all that stuff for sure and it's just hard as a new graduate again you have to be of the mindset of maybe pretend you only are making fifty thousand a year and put a lot towards other stuff but still as an associate 
your boss probably doesn't want you doing a lot of advanced stuff. It's just the reality. Not me as a boss. I have my decisions doing a lot of stuff, but like most people as a boss, like the boss might say, look, I'm doing all the invisible. You're not doing it. I'm making the sleep appliances. You're not going to be making them. Yeah. So then even if you spend a lot of money on the classes for what, you know, yeah. you might not even be allowed to touch some of these bigger cases. Mm-hmm. You know, you might be ready to do an all in four. Yeah. Your boss probably not going to let you do that all in four. Like, so it's just, you know, it's also, that's another thing to just think about balancing, which is again, why it's sometimes nice to get that higher level experience in a residency program and then have that mindset of trying to become an owner. Mm-hmm. If again, you want to be an owner, but like, it's hard to find associate positions where they want you to do all the things. I yeah. mean, it, it just, that makes sense. Um, kind of switching gears as a practice owner, how have you been able to um, serve underserved communities and have your dentistry be accessible while also being profitable and, and being having a successful practice? Well, the way that I've chosen to give back is by accepting Medicaid. Um, I don't do a lot of free things exactly. I mean, I occasionally will just tell someone, don't worry about the bill and just do it. Um, but a lot of times it's, you know, I just feel like the Medicaid write-offs are so large that that's essentially doing a lot of work for free anyways. Um, I'm able to balance that in my practice by the fact that we're mostly fee-for-service and out of network with people's insurances. So I'm able to make more money off of other procedures to kind of balance the Medicaid a little bit. Um, I thought that I might get overrun by Medicaid based on things I've heard just because I accept it, but I really haven't. I think people that come to our office of Medicaid value the fact that our office is as nice it is, as it is. They do generally show up for their appointments and are respectful and great while they're there. Not all of them. <laughs> There's some that are more the stereotype, but a lot of my patients are awesome with Medicaid and a lot of them eventually come off of Medicaid and are still great patients. Um, a lot of my patients are very wealthy will even say, I see what you're doing here about making your practice accessible and helping people with the greatest needs. And they appreciate that. Mm-hmm. I see a lot of patients with special needs because those are my, again, another reason why really it's important to be expect, accept Medicaid is because I am really good at working with patients with special needs and it is a passion of mine. And those patients, a lot of the time have Medicaid. So, but again, the a lot of people will tell you you don't want to be a Medicaid practice, that you can't have a nice practice and accept Medicaid. And I really kind of went out to prove that wrong. Um, it's a nice office. And I don't hide the fact that I see patients with Medicaid. I'm proud of it. And the people that are attracted to my practice are not people that would be like, oh, that's a you know Medicaid practice. They're just not like that. They're the people that are like, that's awesome. You're helping all people. Um, Again, sometimes my my patients with special needs are loud and, you know, Mm -hmm. can be very intense and people will hear it and be like, oh, that's so great what she's doing, Mm -hmm. you know? So again, it's part of the vision, part of the, you know, the why and what I'm doing, why I'm doing what I'm doing. I always had a thought, you know, if it got a little too much where I couldn't balance my practice, I kind of had a game plan of how I could manage that, but it really hasn't happened. And again, when you're able to do more specialty procedures and things, it balances, you know? If I have a patient with Medicaid that just needs a one surface filling, that's a very not even remotely profitable hour of uh, running the practice. But if right next to that, I'm placing an implant, mm. that just became not a big deal at all. It balances yeah. out. 
if I have a patient with Medicaid that needs a Profi, which I pay my hygienist more than Medicaid reimburses for a Profi. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, if they, they have one of those Profis per day, but they also have an SRP every day, they're still making three times their salary. We're still profitable. I'm not worried about it. Yeah. Um, so it's all about that balance, but you do have to know your numbers really well to create that kind of balance. Like I know my hourly production goal in order to meet all my other financial goals for the office. Mm-hmm. And my team knows those goals and what numbers this has to make sense. And we have, we have to hit, mm-hmm. they know that I'm going to be needed for the fillings, but I'm not going to be needed for the denture appointment next to it. And they know how to balance these different things of my time to hit the the goal. Mm-hmm. So it is, does require some intentionality behind it, but it's absolutely possible. Definitely. I think and in, in North Carolina, you can limit how much Medicaid you see in your, in your practice. You can say, I'm accepting Medicaid this month. You can say, oh, I'm getting kind of booked out. I, I don't want to accept Medicaid. Or you can say, I'll accept Medicaid only for children or only the elderly or, you know, you can navigate that. You can say, look, I'm only doing patients that are refer- being referred from our local drug rehab facility. Mm-hmm. You know, I want to help these guys get on their feet. And that's, you know, that is my charity. But like, if all of us accepted Medicaid, it wouldn't be nearly as much of a burden on a few practices. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think your, your practice is an example that you can, like you said, have a really nice practice that is also accessible and be able to meet the impact that you, that you came in wanting to make. And, um, and sticking, sticking to that and not not just taking the stereotypes as as your story, kind of make, making your own story. I, exactly. I, I really commend that. And, and you have to have a team on board for that. You know, my doctors have to understand, look, yeah, you're going to be doing a bunch of fillings for this patient with Medicaid and the production's not going to be as high, but, you know, then you might do a bridge on a cash pay patient and you'll be fine. <laughs> you know, they have to understand that this is just a non-negotiable with working for me that, you know, this is always going to be how it is. Mm-hmm. Um, so. Definitely. Well, going back to the years before you started your practice, how are you preparing to become an owner? What type of resources? Uh, Great question. I listened to a lot of podcasts. I had a lot of crazy commutes with all my temp jobs. <laughs> so I did a lot of podcasts because you can learn a lot from things like this, where you're just learning from people's experiences and grabbing little pieces from different people you talk to, to better shape your own vision. I read books. I really appreciate the E-Myth Revisited, Good to Great, um, the, the, the um, what's it called, the power, was it the power of why or, um, yeah, I, just uh, some of those really classic business books about small businesses and how to grow them and scale, um, I think are huge and apply a lot to dentistry. Um, I talked to other dentists that had started practices or bought practices. I said, let's get lunch. Tell me out your story. I heard all these people's stories. When I would temp in other offices, I would pull an assistant aside and say, what do you love about this office? And what do you just hate? Or what do you wish your boss knew? And it was amazing the things you learned from that, you know, like hearing things like, well, my boss, if my last patient for the day cancels, you know, hygienist, they're saying, if my last patient cancels, he tells me to just get off the clock. Mm. And I have bills to pay and I rely on my salary. So it's, it's annoying when it's, I'm told to get off the clock. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, that, that sucks. I mean, you can't, what are you, you know, how much money are you saving versus that's not her problem. If you can't afford a hygienist, don't have one. Like you can't just tell people to get off the clock. That's ridiculous. 
or, you know, my boss requires me to do the CE course in the evening, but says my pay rate for CE is $15 an hour when my normal pay rate is $40 an hour. You know what? They're, they're going to save themselves 30 bucks. Like you can't pay someone for a full hour of their time in the evening when you're requiring them to do a CE course. Like, mm-hmm. how does that make your team feel? Like, that's just kind of crappy, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, when people say they couldn't afford health insurance and what a burden that was. And I looked at the cost of health insurance. It's like, oh, come on. like you can afford health insurance. I mean, for the most, I mean, I, if you're living a certain kind of lifestyle, I mean, you can afford what an extra couple hundred dollars a month. Mm-hmm. That, I mean, and that's the difference is showing your employee that you really care about them mm-hmm. and their health. I mean, like just kind of hearing some of these things. There's some of them that were taking anti-anxiety meds just to make it through the workday. Wow. I worked at one practice where every single assistant took anti-anxiety medication the morning of working to make mm. it through the day. Um, Cause they said it's just so awful. They said that the doctor once ran out of water and threw down his stuff and fired the person on the spot. You know, just creating these high stress work environments for people for what, you know? Yeah. Um, cause they don't know how to motivate people or be, be an actual leader, you know? And so I learned a lot of these crazy stories I heard from people, um, people being paid in cash for overtime. So, you know, oh, if you go over, go over your 40 hours, you clock out, let me know how many hours you went over and I'll pay you cash. Mm. That's illegal. <laughs> like yeah. you can't, <laughs> you can't do that. Like, so, I mean, I've heard so many crazy stories of things dentists were doing in our local community. And so I realized that like, you know, it's really important to show my employees that I care about them, that I care about my patients. I just went a long way that goes. I mean, that goes just a long way. Just saying like, look, I'm going to get you health insurance. As a startup, I had to say, I can't afford anything right now. But when I get some money coming in, mm-hmm. I'm going to get you health insurance. Yeah. It's like my top priority is making sure you're good. And then following through mm-hmm. on that, you know, yeah. and saying, look, my next priority is you need a retirement account because we're going to retire together one day. And like, yeah. you need to be good. Mm-hmm. Um, or like I buy my employees school supplies for their kids every year. You know, I say, give me your list. Mm-hmm. You know, I got you. But like just little things that you can do to show people that your team, that you really care about them. I learned a lot of that from just talking to other teams. Hmm. Um, I talked to some of my friends about just what would you want in a dentist? What do you like that your dentist does or doesn't? You know, trying to learn that perspective a little bit too. But you just, you know, it's all market research, right? And like the business world, you just got to like, got to learn, you know, about how to be a good leader. What What do the people that are looking up to you, what are they looking for? And again, being a good dentist, what are your patients looking for? What makes them really happy? Do they, now, and the other thing I inter- I learned too in that process is patients have no appreciation for a before and after photo at all. At all. You can show the most beautiful smile makeover and they're going to be like, but that's for see they're like that white. And you're like, yeah, but they're too broken in half. Their front tooth is in half and I built it up and made it look perfect. Mm. But that tooth over there is a little longer. What, like, what are you talking about? But they don't, they don't understand. I don't have before and after photos on my website. I let people connect with me as a person. Um, my patients don't know if I did a great filling or not. Like they just don't understand these things very well. So I really tried to, I got a better understanding of that too, from just like learning in that time talking to people. Um, 
you know, but people really connect with people. That's like that book, Start With Why, though. You know, when people understood my why and I could explain myself, that's a much bigger connection for people than showing them a bunch of before and after photos mm-hmm. that they can't understand at all. Definitely. I think connecting with people is your specialty. Both yeah, with, that's what I'm good at. With your team and uh, with your patients. And if, and yep. if you t- take care of your team, they're going to take care of you. A hundred percent. And that was perfectly demonstrated with the pandemic. I mean, and it's just been demonstrated time and time again. My team really has come through for me when I need it. And when they need it, I come through for them and they know that. And they tell their friends that too, and their family. And when we need to hire, it's normally not that hard because people know that. Yeah. And my team can vouch for all that. Exactly. That karma comes back around. Sure. I have never had so much appreciation for karma as I do as a business owner. I'll yeah. tell you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I have one more question before we yeah. go deep on the business side and Jermaine will handle those questions. But well, from a personal perspective, what advice would you give to a practice owner or an aspiring practice owner on managing having a practice and also having a family? How have you been able to balance um, those responsibilities? Yeah. A few, a few suggestions. I mean, one is that you have to be a true partner with your partner. I mean, a lot of what me and my husband do is really knowing and having confidence that we work together as a team to get this done. And the way we best work is him staying home with the kids. That gives a lot more flexibility um, to our whole routine and allows me to kind of have the more demanding and stressful kind of career without having to come home to someone else who's also going through the same thing. Not to say that's not possible. You can have two people in a high stress job or demanding things, but then you have to have, again, a support team to support that happening. You don't want to have to come home at the end of the day after work and be doing all your household items and all that stuff. Like if you're both going to work your butts off, then you need to have, and you have children or you just want to spend time with each other. Like you have to figure out a system to make that all possible. And what I mean is just similarly, like with a business, a lot of dentist owners try to pay their own bills, post their own payments, manage their own AR, do all their notes. And then they're like wondering why they're burnt out. It's the same thing when you manage your household. I can't do all this stuff. Do I know how to clean my house? Of course I do. I outsource that. Someone else comes and cleans my house twice a week. I, I just, I'm not trying to pick up Cheerios when I could be playing with my kids. Like I, I just want to play with them at the end of the day. Um, or we have parents that live locally. So usually they do at least one sleepover a night there allows us to have some time to reconnect against the time that you can just put away laundry, which can pile up. So some of those are little systems where we do it, but look, I wait till after my kids are asleep and do some of that stuff. So I want some time with them. Um, but my husband gives me a, the ability to do a lot of stuff because he can manage a lot of that household stuff while he's home during the day. But I would, if I didn't have him, I would just be outsourcing more and more of that stuff, whether it's, again, I could cook um, or cook bigger, fancier dinners, but I cook pretty basic dinners because I get, I want to hang out with the kids. Um, also your hours, you know, when you're a practice owner, you can set your own hours. I have a friend that just works two 12 hour days a week. That's it. Her team loves it. <laughs> she loves it. You know, and that's her week. She makes enough money and she's good. You know, for me, I think uh, I went to a CE course where they suggested a seven, three, seven, three day being the ideal day. No lunch. You tell your team, you get time here, you get time there. 
you don't need a clock out just go take a break go eat whatever like let's just get through the day so what happens when you have a lunch break is you end up working through your lunch break and now you're working even longer day your team doesn't get any rest but uh, when you don't really stop things run pretty efficiently and people are excited to get out at the end of the day and things finish on time they don't linger so much you're not kind of stopping and then restarting people love 7 a.m appointments they don't even have to miss work they're just coming a little late for work it's not that big of a deal um and so i mean and three o'clock if you finish at three even if you're a practice owner that needs to stay another hour to get through both your notes and some of your end of day number crunching or whatever you have to do what worst case scenario you leave at four four thirty maybe five if you're like onboarding a new team member doing something a little more time consuming but that's amazing when you're talking about work-life balance as a single person that means you could still go to the grocery store make dinner go to the gym like you, you have your whole afternoon there right as a parent that means you can go to your kid's soccer game again participate with the making dinner process not just walking in exhausted put your kids to bed at night but if you finish your day at five, and then again, maybe you're onboarding that employee, you're doing something crazy and you don't leave till seven, well, you've missed dinner. Definitely miss the kids' games. I mean, that's not even a question if you can make those. You know, when are you going to exercise in that? Like, you know, wake up at the butt crack of dawn or stay up really late. Like, how are you going to do that? You know, that just doesn't make sense. So it, it really changes your whole day being a seven to three. And your employees love it. Because again, your employees get to exercise, participate with their children, make dinner. So employees know that if they left my office, it would be pretty hard to find that kind of schedule. You know, so I, I'm a big fan of the seven to three. I kind of balance that. Now I, I, I see a lot of children. So on Tuesdays, I do seven to six and on Friday, seven to one to balance it. We hope you've enjoyed part one of our conversation with Dr. Holman. Part two will be coming soon and we dive even deeper into the business side of dentistry and discuss how she was able to build a successful startup from scratch. We'll see you next time.